Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that by your word, as you are the source of all light, that you would give light to our souls. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Although... It would seem obvious, let me put it plainly. Christians follow the example of Christ. We are, after all, Christians, Christians. We look to Christ, finding not only our life in Him, but also the example of His life. Let me give you an example. When Paul was writing to the church at Philippi about the necessity of love, fellowship, affection, sympathy, unity, and so on, he gave the example of the humility of Christ. Let me read it to you, and I'd like for you to listen to it, if you can, as if you've never heard it before. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And, and in summary, what Paul is writing there is that from Jesus' incarnation to his exaltation, he served in the interest of others, above himself, to the glory of God the Father. He who is our Lord is our example as well. Of course, this is nothing new for us who believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Certainly Jesus, in the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, perfectly fulfilled His chief end. And I do mean perfectly. But what Paul introduces in our passage today is an oft-overlooked or even an ignored aspect of how you and I glorify God. Did you pick up on it? We glorify God in living in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We glorify God when we live in harmony with one another in accord or in accordance with Christ Jesus. Rarely do we consider our relations as a means to glorify God. But Paul's prayer, if you look at verse 5, Paul's prayer is specific to this point. In fact, let me read it to you in a different translation, similar to the ESV, but slightly different, in which Paul prays, May the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, or harmony, as it's translated in the ESV, is not an end in itself. Think about that. Harmony within the church is not the end goal. What is? The glory of God. And so what I want to do today is I want to just start out, working our way through this passage, I want to start out with this first concept that we are to bear and build up the weak. We are to bear and build up the weak. Now, Paul aligns himself with the strong as compared to the weak, meaning those who live in light of all of the liberty that the gospel grants. Paul aligns himself With those who are strong. For example, in matters of food and drink, which is the example that Paul has used in the preceding passage, in areas of food and drink, the strong know that nothing is unclean in itself. The strong know that everything is clean. Free to eat what you want. Free to drink as you please. What a relief! What a freedom! And it is indeed. And Paul, and Paul is right there. But the liberty of the strong doesn't negate the liability of the weak. In fact, by virtue of our strength, the strong are obligated to bear with the failings of the weak. We must consider more than our personal pleasure, lest we tempt those who are weak to fall into sin. This is not to say that Paul agrees 
with the weak. And I think this is important. In fact, you've already picked up on this word failings, I would imagine, in this passage. And it's intentional. Paul considers the convictions of the weak to be misinformed. Their consciences have been misguided. They are indeed failings. In fact, if we think about Paul's message to the Galatians, Paul's harshest criticism on record in writing was to those who came into the church and encouraged the failings of the weak to go even farther. In which Paul said, and I quote, I wish those agitators would go as far as to castrate themselves. I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? But for the beloved, for the beloved, Paul knows that sanctification is not instantaneous. Don't we wish it were, right? You think back to when you became a Christian, wouldn't it have been wonderful? Insta-Christian, right? All the graces bestowed on you in experientially in that moment. But Paul knows that it takes time. And as the Holy Spirit works on us, molding and making us after the image of Christ, well, Scripture says, it takes a lifetime. And so, he knows we who are strong have an obligation, not to ourselves, but to the weak, to bear with their failings. But just because you don't share your brother's conscience doesn't mean you can't be patient with him. Now, to be clear, this is not the equivalent, and I want to make sure you don't translate this as such, this is not the equivalent of, dear Christian, just Bear, grin, and bear it. Just endure these people sitting around you. That's not what he means by bear and build up. Life in the church is not one of mere relational endurance. Oh, you exhaust me, right? Which, of course, may be the case. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, bear with the failings of the weak. Let each please his neighbor for his good and build him up. Paul's curious inclusion of the title neighbor here, which shows up, I might say, unexpectedly to students of the word, does not signal a change. Paul has not now gone outside of the church to talk about our neighbor but rather, he is still addressing the local church. But his use of the word neighbor here probably implies the necessity of love. What is the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Your brother and sister in the church are your neighbor too. So love them like Christ but I want to get very practical with you in looking at this passage and just ask you then, practically speaking, how does that work in the church? Practically speaking, how do we love one another in the church? If you're looking at the passage, you'll see that Paul employs three different action verbs. Three different action verbs. The first, bear with, as it's translated here. The second, Please, which he uses three times. 
The third is build up. I want to look at those three. These are important verbs. I don't want you to miss this. Let's start with this first action verb, bear with. The Greek word translated bear also means here to pick up, to take up, which I think paints a brilliant picture. You see, when I hear bear, I think, wow, this church has some serious endurance to bear with me. Right? That's not what Paul means. Maybe the truth. What Paul means is to bear, like to carry, to help in bearing something. Often we want to condemn the spiritually immature among us, when in reality, What they really needed all along was you to come alongside and help them carry the burden that is on their conscience. Often this means pleasing others over ourselves. And so that's the second action verb here, to please. As Paul uses the word here, this verb connotes accommodation. You accommodate someone. Look at the passage with me. You'll see that Paul uses it in three different ways. Not to please ourselves, but to please our neighbor, for Christ did not please himself. Same word used in three different cases here. And even if you don't share your brother's personal conviction on a matter, you can still please him in the sense of you can still accommodate him as he is convicted. Demonstrating deference, for example, in points of dispute, not only dispels anger, but it also develops Christ-like maturity. And that's what Paul is saying here, for Christ did not please himself. But as the psalmist sings, and as Paul in this applies Psalm 69 to Christ, he says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now think about that. As Jesus came, not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He sought not to please himself, but to serve Others, even, here's that word, bearing, even bearing the reproaches. And this he did to the glory of God the Father. Those who are ransomed, those for whom Christ died, we build up in Christ. And notably, the weak among us. Paul's appeal, let me be clear, is not for flattery. Like we're pros at this in the church, right? We think that building up is flattering someone. You know, well, that's not the case. Or maybe I should say in the church, in the southern church, we are experts at flattery, right? That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about real, true edification. To build up. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here is a construction term. 
Of course, he's using it figuratively here, but the construction term, as it's used figuratively, means to improve someone's ability to function in living responsibly and effectively. That's the best interest for someone. Flattery tears down because it's a lie. But building up means that you come along into someone's life and you help them. You help develop their ability to function and living responsibly. You help them to live an effective Christian life. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are known for being a people of mercy, to use a modern addiction terminology, we are not enablers. We are not enablers. Nor should we patronize the obstinate. Just because someone disagrees with us and what we do and is obstinate about it doesn't mean that they're weak and that we should just accommodate everyone who's obstinate. No, it means that we should understand and we should help and we should come alongside and help bear that burden and build up to what? To responsibility and to living a right life before God. We want and work for the best for our brother and sister in Christ. This means, to use the term that Paul uses here, this means pursuing the good. It's a word that sort of disappears in this text, isn't it? We want to pursue the good, not just for the weak, but we want to pursue the good for the whole. What is the best for the church in general? And one of the key ways that we build one another up is in the Word of God. One of the key ways that we build one another up is in the Word of God. And so we look to the Word with hope. Let me make a bold statement, and I'm prepared to defend it. What you believe about the Bible informs What you believe and how you behave. What you believe. I'm not talking about on a specific passage. I mean before you even open the Bible. What you believe about the Bible informs what you believe in general about life and how you behave in your life. For example, if you believe that the Bible is a collection of wisdom literature containing a mixture of truth. You may find the Bible helpful in a myriad of moral topics, but hardly authoritative over the whole of life. But if you believe, as it was read earlier, if you believe all Scripture is God-breathed, if you believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God, that it is the very Word of God then you will understand it as a rule of faith and life. Let me give you another example. If you consider the Bible an archaic work of religious literature containing helpful history and gems of wisdom, but hardly helpful today, you will struggle with finding the Bible's relevance in your life. But if you see the Bible as living, and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, then guess what? Then you will understand that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction today. That through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's what Paul says. That is the Word of God. Just as Paul draws from the 69th Psalm to describe Christ's humble service, he points us to the whole, to the whole of Scripture. Certainly we go to Scripture for various reasons. But here, here, why does Paul say, go to the Word, go to Scripture? We go to the Word that we might have hope. But there's something very specific about this hope. We go to the Word and we see and we learn endurance. We go to the Word and we see and we learn endurance. And this is precisely, for example, what the writer of Hebrews does. Just a perfect example, drawing from Hebrews chapter 12, you can check this, or chapter 11 rather, you can check this out for yourself. But what the writer of Hebrews does is he takes us all the way back to creation. And then he takes us through the chapter 11, all the way through to Christ himself. And he shows us the faithfulness of God to his people. And this is how he concludes in Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And with that endurance given, We look to the Word. And when we look to the Word, we find encouragement. Or as it's also translated, comfort in hope. On this point, I cannot cannot encourage you enough to be in the Word of God daily. Systematically working through the Word. Here's what I have found in my own life and why I don't want a day to go by when I'm not in the Word daily. Is that when I'm not in the Word daily, my flesh moves in with a vengeance. My flesh moves in with all of the force that He is capable of doing in me. And so I go to the Word. I wear my family out when we're getting ready to leave on vacation. Because I want to get up and I want coffee and I want the word before we leave. I compromised on our last vacation and Sydney read the word to me while we drove. (laughs) And I had coffee. (laughs) But here's the thing. If you're in the word daily, develop this discipline in your life of being in the word daily. And you will, I promise, and you can come check me about a year from now. Develop this discipline and you will delight in the Word of God. 
not only reading and studying it, but in memorizing it and meditating upon it. The psalmist said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He goes on to say, in the ways of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways, and I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. That's Psalm 119, verses 14 through 16, in case, you want to take, in case you're taking notes. On our recent family vacation, the one that Sydney read to me as we rode down the, the, the drive to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado, and we had a beautiful little balcony, and... The, Maybe I'm crying because I wish I was on vacation. (laughs) That's a joke. They had a little balcony. And I would go out on that balcony and I would just drink in the alpine landscape and coffee. And as I beheld those majestic mountains... Simultaneously, in my memory, I beheld something of greater grandeur than the Rocky Mountains. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this day forth and forevermore. And in that moment, I was reminded how trivial my worries are. Though I make them into mountains, my help comes from the one who created heaven and earth. And I was reminded that what was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Indeed, our encouragement. How can I not go to the Word of God and drink it in, in all of its richness? Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This in itself, if I just stopped here and said, take that in, that in itself should give us hope. In an age defined by trivia, trinkets, and trash, we go not to the world, but we go to the Word for everlasting truth. And it is within the Word that Paul directs us, quote, that we might have hope. For we who were previously separated from Christ, having no hope 
and without God in the world, have heard the truth of the gospel from the very word of God and we have believed it. The hope we have, according to the word of God, it's for the weak. It's for the strong. It's for all of us who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and through the word of God, upon his gospel, we are united as a church living together and glorifying together our God. We live and glorify God together. And I might add, this is worthy of our prayers. Praying for ourselves, praying for one another, as Paul prays. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other in accord with Jesus Christ or with Christ Jesus. We pray that God grant the endurance and encouragement because He's the source of both. John Calvin says, God alone is doubtless the author of patience and consolation, for He conveys conveys both to our hearts by His Spirit. Yet He employs His Word as the instrument. And it's in the means of grace, of the Word, and of prayer that we find our Lord's gracious provision for we, His people. And as His people, we pursue the harmony, and I think that is an excellent translation of that Greek word, we pursue the harmony that God gives. Remembering that what we pursue is perfectly enjoyed in God. Think about that deep theological point for just a second. There is no strife among God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Only holy harmony with the one true and living God. As we are the body of Christ, we too are one. Living in accord with Christ as if, and I love this analogy, as if one voice, one voice in a choir, a selfish voice creates dissonance. If you can hear, think about this, if you can hear one voice above the others, a choir sings not as one voice, but as two dissonant voices. But a submitted voice enjoys consonance. I had to ask Brandon to tell me that word. A submitted voice enjoys consonance. What do we mean by that? When every individual submits to one another together in a choir, the choir produces the beauty of harmony in one voice. Likewise in Christ's church, who is composed of many yet, we sing as one. We submit to one another, resulting in beautiful harmony. Living, singing forth, as it were, to the glory of God. And may we, as Christ church, may we, as Christ church, as one voice, sing forth beautiful praise to the one who not only gives us life, but also lives 
that we may glorify Him forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, how often we are not as one voice. How often we are led astray by sin. How often we are the ones singing louder than than the rest of the choir or not singing at all. Our desire, according to your word, is to enjoy that perfect harmony. We pray that you would give us the grace as a church to live in accord for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.